Father in heaven, we pray for your help this morning, the help of your Holy Spirit to draw the attention of our minds and our hearts to the truth of your word. We pray that as we sit and hear your word, that you would cause us inwardly to look up to Christ, to look up to heaven where our citizenship is as your people, that spiritually you would help us to look forward and hope to that day that is surely to come, the day of the Lord Jesus when he returns back to earth, when we are fully and finally united to him, living fully in the freedom that he's accomplished at the cross and at the empty tomb. We pray that we'd rejoice this morning. Lord, we're in need of wisdom, and so we turn to your word. Lord, I pray for your help to preach your word faithfully, to preach joyfully. Lord, help me to, to clearly exalt your son Jesus and to say what is true this morning. We ask all of that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, there was a, a song, a hymn that was taught to me as a child, and I imagine a number of you were taught this same hymn as a child, Jesus Loves Me. Simple song, I mean, it might have been one of the first songs I ever learned. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. We need to keep saying it. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. What an important truth to learn at a young age, seeds planted to return to later on in life. A very simple yet important message in this hymn about the love of Jesus. And a question I have for you this morning, Christian. Christian, if you believe that Jesus loves you, why is it that he loves you? I mean, all the song tells us, at least in that that chorus, is the Bible tells me so. And we need to be reminded that's important. But why is it that Jesus loves you? Is maybe one of the first things you think to, the, the good efforts or good intentions that you have in your heart, that Jesus surely must be pleased with that? Maybe it's because you're here on Sunday morning and hardly anyone in your neighborhood is at church on Sunday morning. And maybe that's why. You inwardly, deep down, think Jesus must love you because you're doing what's right or trying to, at least. Do you feel like he loves you less as you give in to temptation and sin against him? Christian, do you come in this morning with guilt for sin that you've already repented of? Struggling to, to embrace the love that is freely yours in Christ. Do you have a performance mentality when it comes to your relationship with God? That if you're performing well, well, then you feel like you're in good spiritual standing. But if you've had a rough week, if you've struggled with sin, that you really struggle to believe that Jesus loves you. Well, the gospel sets us free from a performance mentality. The gospel is not about us planting our feet firmly on our own good works. The gospel is about what we just sang, on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. I trust in him. I stand on him. I stand on his perfect life and his death and his resurrection. I stand on his own good works, his finished work and dying on the cross and rising from the dead. The gospel gives us rest. The gospel brings us comfort. The gospel tells us the truth about us, but the gospel focuses us on the truth about Christ and the grace and the forgiveness that is found in knowing Jesus. And that grace and forgiveness is not merely our entrance into the Christian life. The gospel is not merely about us becoming Christians, but about God sustaining us as Christians. Galatians has taught us the gospel is for all of life. From conversion to glory, brother and sister, we need the gospel. And so we turn to the Lord's word this morning, continuing on in our study of Galatians to consider God's deep love for his people in Christ and the freedom that God gives in Jesus to all who have put their faith in him. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. We're picking up where we left off last time, verse 21, and we're going to continue on through chapter 5, 
verse 1. If, if this is your first week here, we're glad to have you. It's really easy to jump in. Just open up a copy of the Bible. We're going to go verse by verse from Galatians chapter 4, verse 21 to chapter 5, verse 1. If you want to use that pew Bible in front of you, take it and turn to page 974. 974, we're going to be in Galatians 4 this morning. And if you don't own a Bible, use that Bible this morning and then take it home with you. That's our gift to you. And if you'd like to read the Bible with someone here in this church, just see one of our pastors. We're at the doors afterwards or see a member that's seated around you. We'd love to connect you to someone who could read the Bible with you. Let me read through all of Galatians 4, 21 through chapter 5, verse 1. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The main idea that I want us to see in this passage, if you're taking notes, Write down this main idea. True freedom is accomplished by God's promise, not our works. True freedom is accomplished by God's promise, not our works. So far in the book of Galatians, we've seen the Apostle Paul exhorting the Galatians to not turn back to the slavery of sin, to keep welcoming the gospel, to keep trusting the gospel. And the Galatians were on the verge of apostasy, of abandoning Christ, abandoning the gospel and turning back. They weren't there yet, and that's the aim of the Apostle Paul in this letter, is to shepherd them away from that. And we thought last week that their apostasy, what was interesting about it is that it looked religious. It looked acceptable and, and respectable. I mean, after all, the, the Judaizers who we've been thinking about, the false teachers that came into that region in Galatia right after Paul left, they came in pretty quickly and started teaching a false gospel, which the Apostle Paul has been clear, there is no other gospel besides what he had preached to them. And these Judaizers were teaching those Christians, those Gentile Christians in Galatia, that they would need to put themselves under the Old Testament law and be circumcised if they really wanted to be counted as God's people. So the message was something like you can keep Jesus, keep the cross, keep the empty tomb, but you need to add something to the promise of God and Jesus. Add your own good works, add your own good efforts, and then you'll be righteous or right before God. And Paul shows them in this passage in Galatians the great reversal that's taken place in Christ. The great reversal how, how through Jesus, God has kept His promise to Abraham to make him the father of many nations and brought the Gentiles in to be adopted and counted as those who know God as their father. As we make our way through this passage in Galatians 4, I want to break up our, our sections, three different sections this morning as we go through this chapter. The first section in verses 21 through 27. I want to give an exhortation with each section. Verses 21 through 27, here's the first exhortation. Embrace freedom as your identity. Embrace freedom 
is your identity. That's what the Apostle Paul wanted for the Galatians. Christian, that's what he wants for you this morning. Paul begins this section with with a question, and he uses this question to make a point. There in verse 21, his question to the Galatians is something like, you are wanting to be under the law. Are you sure about that? Do you really know what it is you're asking for? You really don't want that. I mean, do you not listen to the law? But what these false teachers are selling you is really not what it, it seems. You'll be living, or rather leaving, a life of freedom in Christ to submit yourselves again to slavery if you follow them. In other words, he's saying, you can't handle the law. You really can't. You think you want the law, but you really can't handle the law. And in verse 22, Paul returns to what was written in the Old Testament about Abraham. So we've seen him do this before back in chapter 3, but here he focuses on two mothers and two sons connected to Abraham. And he shows these two different mothers, and through their lives, there are two different ways to live. You can either live as free or as a slave, by promise or by the flesh. It's either one or the other. And those who live under Christ are free. Those who submit again to the Old Testament law are slaves. So let's track with this argument here first by considering biblical history. That's what he does first. He takes them on a reminder of of history. So how is it that Abraham had two sons by two different women? Now, we spent a lot of time in the book of Genesis just a couple years ago, a long time in Genesis, an important book of the Bible to understand biblical history. And we thought back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, about God's covenant with Abraham. His covenant promise in chapter 12, verse 2, God said, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in God's covenant to Abraham, he promised really two gifts land and descendants. He would make his descendants to outnumber the stars in the sky. Those descendants would need a land to live in, and God promised both to Abraham. But there was a problem. Abraham's wife, Sarah, was barren, humanly incapable of having a child. How would God do this? How would God fulfill his promise? There was a a big issue standing in the way, Abraham and Sarah getting older, yet being called to cling to God and His promise, even when it didn't make sense by human sight. You see, God promised Abraham to make him the father of many nations. And in order for that promise to be fulfilled, God would have to be the one to miraculously provide a child for Abraham and Sarah. It would not be possible by human effort. A time went on, and they were waiting, and they were waiting, and they were waiting, and there was no child. In Genesis chapter 16, we see that Sarah was almost 75 years old, Abraham, 86, getting old, time moving on, no child, nothing happening. And if you recall the story, Sarah foolishly proposed a polygamous relationship as a solution. Her servant, Hagar, who was an Egyptian slave, offering her to become Abraham's second wife that she could bear for them a child. And through them, Abraham and Hagar, a second or a first child, came there, Ishmael. Think about that action. The statement of that action was acting as if God's promise needed something added to it. Human help. Human strength. God's promise plus a little bit of help from human wisdom as if Abraham and Sarah needed their own wisdom to add to God's wisdom, if God's promise needed a little bit of help from them. And in Galatians chapter 4, verse 23, the Apostle Paul, he's tracking with this line of reasoning. We see in verse 23, the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. Ishmael, born to Hagar, born according to the flesh, meaning he was conceived in a normal human manner. Even more, his birth came about by a lack of faith, by not trusting God's promise and and waiting on 
him. But for Sarah, a barren woman, it would be entirely different. It wasn't human, human, humanly possible for her to get pregnant. It would take a miracle from God. If you remember the story, 14 more years passed, a total of 25 years after the promise, and God fulfilled His promise to Abraham, and Sarah gave birth to Isaac. Think about this. Isaac was not a work of two human beings. Isaac was not produced by human effort. He was produced solely by God's promise and by His grace. That's why in Galatians 4, 23, we see the son of the free woman was born through promise. Think about the contrast. Ishmael's birth was the work of human plotting. Isaac's birth, the work of God's promise. With Isaac, it seemed that Abraham learned a lesson, that the necessary response to God's promise is to trust His promise, not to try to add to it. That's the history. Paul lays out that biblical history there. You may already connect, where is Paul going with this argument and this history? Well, he's using the two different mothers and the two different sons to contrast two different ways to live, either as a slave or as free. That's why we have this this theme building throughout this passage of slave and free set up as a contrast. So track with me here. It's never like a delight to a pastor to, to read scholars who write about a book. And I read this week, one of the scholars say, uh, this passage is probably the most difficult passage in the New Testament to interpret. All right, great. Now try not to lose people with this. But I want to be clear. We've said this before. It's good to do hard work in the Bible. Uh, we have so many... Uh, Teens here in middle school and high school, you are doing difficult things in math class that I have forgotten how to do. You give yourself to hard work. Uh, Each of you in your occupations or in your responsibilities in the home, you do hard work. You learn hard things. You overcome challenges. Your capacity gets stretched. And God gives you what you need to be able to be faithful to what he's called you to do. It's the same thing with God's word. It's a simple message that even a child can benefit from and understand. At the same time, it can be hard work sometimes to understand what is being said here. So let's give ourselves to hard work. Track with me here as we make our way through these next few verses. In verse 24, Paul takes the history of Isaac and Ishmael, and he develops an allegory from it. Look at verse 24. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants, One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. All right, now subjectively, when we hear the word allegory or something that means like figuratively, we may get a little nervous about like that. Like, what does that mean? That doesn't seem like wise scholarship. When you hear that word allegory, it may seem like what's being suggested is that we don't take the Bible literally. Well, that's not at all what Paul is doing here. After all, this is an apostle And here's how he's interpreting Scripture. And really what he's doing in this section, he's using biblical history as an illustration to make a point of spiritual truth to the Galatians. So so what's an allegory? An allegory is a, a story which takes people, places, and events and assigns meaning to them to communicate a spiritual truth. So again, just think of this as an illustration. What Paul's doing here, he's taking history... Sarah and Isaac, Hagar and Ishmael, all people who lived in history, recorded in the Old Testament, and he's using their history as an illustration to teach a spiritual truth. The allegory begins, the two women represent two covenants. Hagar, a covenant of works. Sarah, a covenant of grace. Hagar, the Old Covenant, or the Old Testament. Sarah, the New Covenant, or what's revealed in the New Covenant. Testament, God keeping His promises made in the Old Testament, keeping those in Jesus. Now, the Old Covenant was marked by the Old Testament Mosaic Law. We thought quite a bit about that in the book of Galatians, which is why in verse 25 we read that Hagar is connected to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, the place where God gave Moses the law, the Ten Commandments. Look at verse 25. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Here's the surprise in Paul's illustration. 
Hagar represents the Old Covenant, the Old Testament law, and she is connected to what Paul calls the present Jerusalem, meaning the Jewish people of Paul's day. Hagar was Egyptian. Certainly the Judaizers, the false teachers in Galatia would say, well, the Gentiles came from the line of Hagar, but Paul here connects her to the present Jerusalem, saying that they've missed what they've been waiting for, Jesus, the Messiah. Look at what he's doing here, drawing out this contrast. He's saying the Jewish people of Paul's day, that they were enslaved under the law, living in slavery. Christ came to set them free from the law, yet they rejected Christ and continued to live in slavery. That's one way to live, in slavery, under the law, which is the way that the Judaizers in Galatia were living, and they were trying to get the Galatians, the Gentile Christians there, to live that way as well. But there's another way to live. Paul draws out the contrast here. Sarah, by contrast, is connected to the new covenant. And Paul says to the true Jerusalem. Look at verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Again, these are some of the verses that was talked about. These are difficult to interpret. But but I think if you're tracking here, the contrast becomes clear. Jerusalem stands for the people of God, the holy city of God. And Paul draws a contrast here, naming two cities, the earthly Jerusalem and the heavenly Jerusalem. That's present and above. The earthly Jerusalem and the heavenly Jerusalem. It is the heavenly Jerusalem or the Jerusalem above that truly are God's people. Jerusalem above is a spiritual place. That's talking about heaven. It's a real spiritual place. And it speaks to the church of Jesus Christ, whose members by faith in Jesus are citizens of heaven. This speaks to God's new covenant people, all who have repented of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ, all who have been born again spiritually, Jews and Gentiles alike, have been made free in Christ and citizenship is found in heaven. Now the point of Paul making this whole allegory, it really again is to set up there's two ways to live, and you are either from the line of Hagar or you're from the line of Sarah. You're either living as a slave or you're living as free. The children of the free woman are those who've received God's promise of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Anyone who's in Christ is from the line of Sarah and Isaac and is a true descendant of Abraham. In verse 27, he quotes from Isaiah 54, which we heard read earlier. 54 verse 1, to make this point that the Gentile Christians belong to the heavenly Jerusalem. Look there in verse 27. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. What Isaiah was talking about in chapter 54 of Isaiah, there he speaks of the city of Jerusalem as a barren woman, mourning as her husband was carried away into captivity. Lost to exile. That was what was happening in the book of Isaiah. But the promise is that God will have compassion again on His people. He will fill the city of Jerusalem once again. Isaiah was looking forward. A promise that a new day was coming. A new Jerusalem with even more children than the old Jerusalem. Paul uses this passage to show that the Gentile Christians are the children of the barren woman. In the same pattern as Sarah, they are children of this barren woman. God's promise bringing life and blessing out of desolation in a way that surpasses what was imagined in the Old Testament. Isaiah 54, that's where this passage is. You're probably somewhat familiar with Isaiah 53. The prophecy about this suffering servant. uh, The one who would come and bear the infirmities and the weaknesses of God's people, their their sin, uh, the one who would be led to slaughter, that they might know God. All that Isaiah was promising about a city that was yet to come, a new Jerusalem that would have even more descendants than the old Jerusalem, it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's Paul's whole point. God's blessing comes through promise, 
and promise. All of God's promises are found in Jesus Christ. His point in this analogy, there are only two ways to live, slave or free, old covenant or new covenant. You can either live in the earthly Jerusalem or you can find your citizenship in the Jerusalem above. And Paul used this allegory to help those Galatian Gentile believers to correctly locate their identity. They were free in Christ. They had already put their faith in Jesus and been forgiven of their sins. Nothing needed to be added to Jesus. Nothing needed to be added to God's promise in Jesus. If they were to try to add human effort, they would be just like what happened with Hagar, relying on their own human wisdom and not trusting God's promise. He wanted them to see you are already citizens in the heavenly Jerusalem. Well, what does that have to do with your life, Christian? I think that you and I need to regularly locate our identity. The Christian's identity is found in Jesus. We don't find our identity by looking in the mirror. It's probably where a lot of our problems come from. How often we look in the mirror, so to speak. Look at ourselves. Try to rely on our own good works and, and efforts, either boosting ourselves up in pride or living in insecurity and guilt. Christian identity is found by looking to Christ, looking at the inheritance that He has secured for us. Looking to your citizenship in the heavenly Jerusalem is the same call that Paul has for us as Christians. See your life through that lens. Your identity is found by looking up there, not around down here. From the moment that you were converted, Christian, the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, your citizenship spiritually was counted in heaven. And nothing can ever change that. It means your life is hidden with Christ on high. He came to dwell inside of you at the moment of conversion. The promise in Matthew 28, 20, that Christ is with you always, even to the end of the age, until you go to be with him or until he comes back down to earth to finish off what he started at the cross and the empty tomb. You see, looking up, brings hope. When we look up, we find help. Christ is seated this morning. Our risen, resurrected Savior is reigning this morning in a real place. It's a spiritual place. It's called heaven or the new Jerusalem. And when we look up, we find hope, and we find help because we're looking to Jesus. And listen to this. In Christ, we have hope that one day that heavenly Jerusalem, and notice that the way the Apostle Paul is talking about it, he's not talking about it about the Jerusalem it is to come. He's talking about it as the Jerusalem that already is. It's a real place. If you put your faith in Jesus, that's where your identity and your citizenship is found right now, this morning. What's yet to come is when that new Jerusalem comes down to earth. You might be familiar with Revelation chapter 21, a wonderful chapter to consider. In verse 2 of Revelation chapter 21, John saw the day that Christ returns when the heavenly Jerusalem will come down out of heaven. He says in Revelation 21 2, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We look up, we find hope and help in Jesus. For now, we look forward to that day. We pray for that day. We're called to live today in light of that day that surely is to come. But well, Christian, I wonder how often do you find your identity by looking up and looking forward? How many of your problems in life are found in looking down and looking inward? Those false teachers were calling the Galatians Look in. Add to God's promise. Secure for yourself righteousness. Be concerned with everything down here. And the Apostle Paul, his response was to locate your identity and embrace the freedom that is yours in Christ. Well, in verses 28 through 31, we see a second section and a second exhortation I want to give you. Cast out anything that enslaves. Cast out anything that enslaves.
What does all of this have to do with the Galatians? Well, in the last section, Paul explains how this history and this allegory applies to the Galatians. Two mothers, two sons, two covenants, two cities. You belong to either one or the other. And Paul tells the Galatians who they belong to. He wants them to be clear. Who's who you belong to? Verse 28. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. The Apostle Paul tells these Gentiles they are the descendants of Abraham and Isaac. Through faith in Jesus, they've received the promise. They're no longer slaves, but sons of God. And so Paul used this analogy of Sarah and Hagar to show what I've heard referred to as the great reversal. Consider the glory in this great reversal. Now, the Judaizers certainly would have viewed themselves as the one connected to Abraham and Isaac. They would have looked at their heritage. They were born of the nation of Israel. In their own minds, they were zealous about God's law and more serious about keeping it than anyone else. They would have viewed themselves as being in right standing, the ones connected to Abraham and Isaac. And they probably, most clearly, would have viewed the Galatians, those Gentiles in Galatia rather, as descendants of Hagar and Ishmael. The Gentiles came from this Egyptian slave woman. And in their false teaching, they were wrongly instructing the Galatians to try to add to faith in Jesus, to be circumcised and submit themselves to the Old Testament law, for the Gentile Christians to become like these Judaizers in order to be counted righteous before God. You see, the Judaizers, they thought they were on the right side of history. They thought they were in good standing. But the reality is, the great reversal that the Apostle Paul shows, they may have belonged to the earthly Jerusalem, but they did not belong to the heavenly Jerusalem. There's only one way into heaven. It's Jesus. There's only one way to God. His name is Jesus. Yes, He's Jewish. He's the Jewish Messiah. But these Judaizers, they missed Him. It wasn't enough for them to be born Jewish. It wasn't enough for them to be identified ethnically with Abraham and his people. It wasn't enough for them merely to connect themselves to the earthly Jerusalem. The earthly Jerusalem always was a type. It always was a shadow of what was yet to come, the heavenly Jerusalem. It always was looking forward to what God would do in securing for Abraham descendants from all nations. That was only possible through Jesus. The only one who could go and collect people from the ends of the earth to provide a family for Abraham Jesus through his death and his resurrection. The great reversal is rather these Gentile Christians, they were God's people, citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem. They inherited the promise not by physical birth, but by faith and spiritual birth. Paul's saying to the Galatians, in Christ, you are children of promise. He says it again down in verse 31. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Hagar's line represented human effort, but Sarah's line represented promise. Ishmael, born through human effort, as if God needed some help in keeping his promise, Isaac was born by God's promise alone. Paul's saying the only way to be born into Abraham's family is by promise, not by virtue of your own efforts. The only way in is to be adopted to be spiritually adopted by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul lays out all of this to appeal to the Galatians, don't move backwards in redemptive history. If you follow them, if you try to start to add something to the name of Jesus and His promise, you're turning back the clock and heading backwards. To keep Jesus, but to add the Old Testament law to Him, is to abandon Him and to turn away from Christ. Now keep in mind, I've said throughout Galatians, Paul has nothing negative to say about the law. The law is good. It comes from God. That's how we know it's good. From God to Moses, Mount Sinai. Good. It reveals God's holy character, His righteousness. Good. What was bad was that they had the law in the wrong place. The law was temporary until Jesus came to fulfill it. It was preparatory, meaning causing them to look forward to what was yet to come, The law ultimately would show you your sin, your need for forgiveness. It would show you your unrighteousness. It needed to be kept in its proper place. The Apostle Paul was drawing this truth out. The law does not have the power 
to set you free from sin. Let me say this clearly. No one has ever been forgiven by the law. That only comes by Christ. No one has ever received righteousness from the law. That's not what it's meant to do. It's not meant to make you righteous. In fact, to the contrary, it's meant to show you your unrighteousness. The law won't make you righteous. Only Christ will. The law cannot change your heart. Only Christ does. The law cannot declare you righteous. It can declare you unrighteous, but it cannot make you righteous. Only Jesus can do that. The law is the old era, and to put yourself under the law is to return to slavery. You've been born of promise. The Apostle Paul says, don't turn back. We hear something of the nature of false teaching here. It's important to understand false teaching. Persecution attacks churches from the outside. It's those who are not Christians attacking the church of Jesus Christ, trying to get rid of the church on earth. And far too many of our brothers and sisters around the globe know this type of persecution. False teaching is different. It comes from inside the walls of the church. And you've got to know how to spot it. It's just the same old thing, really. It's trying to add something to Jesus. There are are Christian churches in town that preach a different gospel than what you hear preached here. The message of liberal Protestantism is Jesus plus your good works. Jesus plus live a good life. Jesus plus try to be a good neighbor. Jesus plus try to do the right thing and then you'll be right with God. The message of Roman Catholicism is that Jesus plus infant sprinkling, Jesus plus the Mass and the Eucharist, well, that will make you righteous. That's a different gospel. It's not the gospel that we find contained in the pages of the Bible. The biblical gospel sets Jesus Christ alone, all by himself. Nothing needs to be added to him. His perfect life, His death on the cross was sufficient to pay for every sin of all who would trust in him. It's only by the power of his resurrection that you'll find new life in Christ. Nothing needs to be added to that. Justification is found by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That is the gospel. There is no other gospel. What the Galatians needed was to walk in freedom. And that's why in verses 29 through 30, Paul calls them, to cast out what is hindering them. Verse 29, but just as, it, as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Again, this may remind you of Genesis chapter 21 when Sarah cast out Hagar and Ishmael and God approved of that. Isaac and Ishmael could not grow up together. They were rivals, and Ishmael had contempt for Isaac and persecuted him. And so it continues to this day with the line of Isaac and with Ishmael. You see, Paul makes the comparison that in the same way, the Judaizers were persecuting the church. Their false teaching was attacking the gospel and attacking the faith of these new believers in Jesus Christ. It was working against them by false teaching. And the command in verse 30 is to cast out these false teachers. They needed to be free from the influence of a false gospel. Well, Christian, we are to walk in the power of God's promise, and we are to cast out anything that threatens that. The best way to know when you're being pestered by a false gospel is to know the true gospel. That's why every Sunday morning we rehearse the gospel. We sing about God's love in Jesus. We read from Scripture about what God has done in Jesus. We pray to a risen, resurrected, reigning Savior who one day is returning to focus our eyes upward and above on Jesus. We sit and listen to God's Word because God's Word points to who He is and what He's done in Jesus and reminds us of that. The best way to spot a false gospel in your life is keep giving yourself to the true gospel. Daniel Cox shared a wonderful testimony to our men the other night at our fall gathering, uh, a testimony of just very simply, what has God used to strengthen him in his faith in the past, and how do you keep giving yourself to those things? Reading the Bible, hearing the Bible preached, being meaningfully involved in a local church, 
having encouraging relationships in your life. If you're a Christian this morning and you think back to your growth as a Christian, it probably came through those simple types of things. And the way forward, keep giving yourself to that. When you're tempted to start relying on your own works, when you're tempted to start depending on the flesh, the true gospel is what reminds us of how we got saved in the first place and how we're going to be sanctified. Well, Christian, I wonder what it is you need to cast out in your life. You see, the more you know the true gospel, the quicker you will be to spot threats and false gospels that you're buying into. The more that you'll live by grace, the more that you'll not tolerate legalism in your own life. Third and final section, chapter 5, verse 1, and a final exhortation, stand firm in freedom. I know the way that our Bibles divide this up, this goes with the next chapter, but keep in mind this is a letter written. It just kind of flowed as a letter. It didn't originally have numbers and verses. That's what we've done to track with these letters that have been preserved for us. This word for in verse 1 of chapter 5, I think it serves both as a conclusion for chapter 4 and a transition to what we see in chapter 5 that comes with more instructions for the Galatians on how they're to live. In chapter 5, verse 1, it is a theme verse for the whole book of Galatians. If you want to see a theme for this whole book, Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What I love about this verse is it combines what we call the indicative and the imperative. The indicative just simply means indicating what God has already done in Christ. Imperative, therefore, Christian, how you must live through the power of Christ. The reality is you and I tend to ebb and flow in how we live in the indicative and the imperative. And sometimes we're so focused on what we're doing and we, we think we're living in obedience, but really just focusing on our own efforts. And we need to hear the indicative, what God has already done in Christ. The greatest work that needs to be done has already been accomplished in Christ. We rest in that past work of Jesus at the cross and the empty tomb. At the same time, those who are resting in Christ are actively obeying God. His commands matter. They just need to be in the right place. They're an overflow of the, the love that we receive from Jesus. All those who love Jesus will do what he says. Jesus says, why do you say you love me and do not do what I command? Those who truly walk in the love of God and Christ will also obey. So the Apostle Paul, if you get uncomfortable sometimes thinking, man, I hear this, and is this saying that our actions or our obedience doesn't really matter? No. In fact, in this verse, he combines both the indicative and the imperative. What God alone has done, and Christian, what you must do. This verse says something like, Christ has freed you to be free. So stand in freedom. Stand firm in the freedom that is yours in Christ. The law leaves you condemned. It shows you your sin. It was temporary and preparatory, pointing to Jesus coming to fulfill the law, Jesus perfectly keeping the law, and then Jesus dying on the cross to pay the penalty for your law-breaking. Christian, Jesus' death and His resurrection from the dead has redeemed you out of slavery, freed you from the condemnation of the law, freed you from the penalty of sin, freed you from the power of sin over you, dominating you. God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, has set you free. That's the indicative part of the verse, what God alone has done in Christ. Well then, how should Christians respond? Paul doesn't leave this off. That's why I love this verse. Next, the imperative command in the second part of chapter 5, verse 1, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. A yoke is a metaphor for bondage and slavery. A yoke literally was a wooden cross placed over an animal like an ox that, that would bind them to a particular path. It would kind of keep them straight on a path and control an animal. The, the Old Testament, they often refer to the, the law, the commandments, as a, as a yoke, that in a good way, what, what, it would bind them to who God is and His holy standards. But again, it was preparatory. It was temporary. If the Galatians were to put themselves under the law 
and be circumcised. That means they were trying to add to faith in Jesus. And the Apostle Paul says they would be willingly putting on a yoke of slavery that would bind themselves to an old, weak, and powerless path. His exhortation, do not put on the yoke of legalism. Uh, Legalism is trying to justify yourself before God by your own law-keeping. Don't turn back and think you can earn God's favor or keep God's favor by your own effort. We see in this verse the implication that Christians will be tempted to turn back to submitting again to a yoke of slavery. And so I have a question for you, Christian. Are you seeking your confidence before God in what you're doing? Or maybe you're paralyzed because of the overwhelming sense of what you're not doing. Are you paralyzed or proud because you're focusing on yourself? Or are you putting your confidence in what Christ alone has done? Every Sunday, our eyes are called outward, upward to Jesus. This isn't one project to make us feel better about ourselves on Sunday morning, to try to be more optimistic thinkers in the midst of a negative world. The goal of Sunday mornings is to rehearse the gospel, to rejoice in what Jesus has done, to rejoice in His good works, to rejoice in His finished work on the cross and His death and His resurrection, and to find hope and help that's only found in Jesus. You see, the gospel teaches us you can't accumulate righteousness for yourself. You can only receive righteousness from Christ through faith. You know, in order to understand, or in order rather to stand firm in freedom, you have to understand what Christian freedom truly is. Some wrongly think of freedom as living however you want to. That's not Christian freedom. A freedom to live however you want to is just another form of slavery. It's being enslaved to selfishness. It's being enslaved to whatever pops into your mind at any given moment. Christian freedom is different. When the Bible addresses freedom, it always means freedom found in Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, the Apostle Paul said there, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. All who put their faith in Jesus Christ, filled with the Spirit, there is freedom, free to live, free to love for God, free to live a life for His glory. And the Christian life is a life of remaining where you are in Christ. Standing firm, it just means stay where you're at. Remain. Have your feet firmly planted. Keep alert. Resist any attack. Stand firm. You see, what helps me think about Christian freedom is it certainly involves freedom from something, but also there's freedom too. And some people wrongly just think about freedom from. Well, freedom from having to live in this way, I can just live however I want to live. Well, that's not true. There's always a freedom from and a freedom too. Christian freedom is freedom from the bondage of sin and freedom to love God and love your neighbor. That sums up all of the law. And finally, the freedom's found in the Holy Spirit of God empowering you to do that. You see, the Galatians were freed from moralism, and they were freed to embrace biblical morals. So anyone who says, well, Christians, I don't get this. You're just free from living to any sort of standard. Well, moralism is different from having morals. Moralism says I'm depending on myself and my own good efforts. I'm finding my identity in what I do. Morals are just things we really care about, defined in the Bible. We care about them because God cares about them, and any true believer is going to start to embody and embrace those morals. They're not there to justify yourself, but rather to live freely in ways that love God and love those around you. Freedom from sin, freedom from death, freedom from Satan, that's all found through faith in Jesus Christ. Freedom from the condemnation of the law. Freedom from the curse of sin. But don't miss the freedom too. Freedom to obey God. Freedom to live how He wants me to live. Freedom to love God and love others from a sincere heart. Freedom from fear to trust a sovereign God. Freedom from guilt and free to walk in forgiveness and in grace. 
free from living in anger and resentment, and free to forgive others as we've been forgiven in Jesus, free to say no to ungodliness and worldly lusts, and free to walk in the holiness God has called us to. For those who've trusted in Christ, we've been born again by the Spirit of God. Stand firm in the freedom that is already yours in Christ. Well, Christian, returning to the question we asked at the beginning, why does Jesus love you? Not based upon your own good works, not based upon your own efforts. He loves you because He loves you. That's simply who He is. He's a gracious, forgiving, merciful God. And for those who've been forgiven of our sin, we are free to walk in a loving relationship with God. We're free to rest in the freedom that has been given to us. We're free to rejoice that true freedom is accomplished by God's promise alone and not by our works. And therefore, we're free to rest in God's promises and His purposes in Christ. Oakhurst Baptist Church, stand firm in the freedom that is already yours in Christ. Let's bow now and pray and ask God to help us be those who enjoy and rest in His promise. Father, we are too quick to forget what we hear in Your Word. Uh, We are quick to say yes and amen on Sunday mornings, but quick to to give in to temptation, even when we live here, when we leave here, to, to revert back to living on confidence found in the flesh. And so we ask for Your grace and Your help And the power of your Holy Spirit that as we leave this place that we would be refreshed and renewed by the gospel, reminded of your deep love for us in Christ, and strengthened to walk by faith, to rest in who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. Lord, we thank you for the freedom you've given us in Jesus. And we ask for your help that we would look upward and forward, upward to heaven where Christ is, and forward to that day that we will know full and true fellowship with him. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.